introduced to him uh, as I went to Ironman Summit at Flint Hills Bible in Emporia. He's one of the speakers there, and I was encouraged with his exposition of the word and his love for the church, his love for Christ was very evident and obvious in his presentation of the truth. And I uh, just got to know him more uh, just through different um, pastor events and, and some of the fraternities that I was able to be a part of through Dave Hintz. And every time I talked to him, I uh, was um, more and more encouraged and strengthened in my own faith, my own desire to be a better pastor, as I heard of, of his desires to shepherd his flock well. That was a huge encouragement to me. So I uh, asked him two years ago to come to our Spring Bible Conference in 2020, and uh, he orchestrated a worldwide pandemic to make sure he didn't have to come that time. So uh, I'm just kidding. That, that uh, pandemic hit, I think, the Thursday or Friday before Brett was supposed to come. He was supposed to be here on Saturday and preach on Sunday, and we were texting back and forth. It might have been Wednesday. We are like, yeah, it's probably better if you stay with your people, and, and uh, we figure out what we're doing with ours. Um, and so here we are, two years later, finally got this worked out and figured out he couldn't come up with any other ways out of this. So he's here shoehorned into this moment. Um, but we're so thankful for him. His wife, Kelly, and their three kids are with us as well. I trust you get the opportunity to minister to them and get to know them uh, and uh, encourage them and thank them for the time they're giving. Their kids are on spring break starting this week. Um, so, I mean, what a, what a great vacation to come to Newton, Kansas, right? I mean, that, that's where I would pick. If I was from Lee's Summit, I'd be like, I'm going on spring break to Newton, Kansas. That would be definitely my pick. But uh, they graciously joined us, and we're thankful that they did. So I'm going to pray and stop taking Brett's time. I told him this is the only firm line of the whole conference is the 1015 line. So I'll pray and, and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our brother and then give the, the time to him. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the privilege it is to be a part of the church. Thank you for the joy of your salvation that you've given us through your son. Help us, Father, to uh, be struck through with the word in fresh ways in the minutes ahead. We pray for our brother that you would strengthen him in the preaching of the word, and we pray for us as hearers that we would be strengthened in truly listening, not just hearing the words of truth, but taking them in and receiving them by faith. And Father, we ask that you would do a mighty work among us, strengthen and enliven us for your glory. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Brett. Well, it is a, a great joy. It's a great honor for my wife and my kids, my three kids. One of them, David, is uh, with the sixth graders right now, but my wife, Kelly, and my daughters, Bree and Emmy. It's really an enjoyable time for us to be here. Uh, with you, and I have so enjoyed the fellowship of your pastor over the last number of years as well. Uh, very thankful for God raising up a number of faithful brothers and like-minded churches in this area, and uh, we, we really have something unique here. I've pastored in a number of places. I was born and raised in Amarillo, Texas, and uh, pastored there for about eight and a half years, right out of high school. Now, that's interesting and odd. I don't recommend it to most people to, to get into ministry that way. It's just the way it happened. Uh, I was taken under by uh, a guy that had been planting churches for about 50 years. And about uh, a year and a half into that, he passed away. And the church just kept me on and endured me for the next number of years. But it was a great learning time. And then I realized if I wanted to do Bible exposition, I was going to need some more training. That's really what I wanted to do was really exposit the scriptures and so 
in God's grace, he let me go out west to Los Angeles, rural Texas to Los Angeles. It was, it was a bit challenging uh, and, and certainly was a new experience for me, but a great joy to my heart to be out there. That's where I met my wife, Kelly. She's from Los Angeles, and we were married in 2001. I also served for about eight years uh, in the Palm Springs area and uh, in the high desert area. And so we, we really enjoyed our time out there. 11 years ago, a little over 11 years ago, we made our way out to Kansas City and to Summit Woods Baptist Church. Um, someone asked me, uh, so had you always wanted to make your way out to Kansas City? And I said, uh, when I first heard Lee Summit, I didn't know what that was. I was in the Los Angeles metro area and I Kansas City was not on our radar. Lee Summit certainly was not on our radar. I didn't know where that was. I said, I, I think I'll probably be out in the middle of a cornfield somewhere. Uh, but uh, we, it was just like hand in glove, the fellowship that we have enjoyed with that congregation there, and the Lord has been so gracious. And as we came out, we just started to notice a number of, of pastors coming to this area uh, who were of like mind, and the fellowship that was developing among them was quite sweet. And so we were... We've just been really overjoyed with the fellowship that we've enjoyed with a number of people. How many of you brothers have been to the Ironman Summit? So a few? Yes. So that, that's a great highlight for our congregation. Every single year we bring out, I don't know, anywhere from about 35 to 50, 60 guys with us uh, every year just to enjoy that, that summit time. So I've probably seen some of you, maybe even met some of you before, but we actually kind of feel related to many of you here because we have a form, we have a former Booznitz in our church. So I hear that there's a few of those in the area. And we were just, uh, texting with, uh, Crystal Mickelson, who is our, our Booznitz at Summit Woods saying, all right, who's the ones that we need to, to meet and know here. Uh, so, uh, we're related somehow, right? We're related. Well, the subject that I, I want to bring and that I've been, you know, studying for about two years to talk to you about uh, is First uh, <laughs> Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I was just talking through a number of, of uh, scenarios and issues with uh, Pastor Matt, and, and I said, well, listen, at that time, two years ago, I just spent some time studying First Corinthians, and, and I said, you know... This is on my heart. This is something I think that could be helpful to the congregation. It's certainly some issues that we have been dealing with in our congregation for some time, and I thought it would be helpful if uh, maybe we studied it together. And the issue that I want to talk on over the next number of sessions, the next couple of days, is the issue of that warm and fuzzy topic of apostasy, the, the really encouraging word of apostasy. Or even the issue of self-deception. That is not a new issue for the people of God to deal with. It's not a new issue at all. Maybe you know someone. Do you know anyone who has actually walked away from Christianity? Someone who once professed faith in Jesus, who now disavows such belief as personal and genuine or relevant. Do you know an apostate? Unfortunately, I do. I've experienced some of that in my ministry. Perhaps you found yourself concerned with someone who professes to be a Christian but tends to live contrary to the ethics of Scripture, and they think very little of it. In fact, they seem quite comfortable to profess Christ but live contrary to the gospel of Christ. They seem very confident in their security 
They've been a part of the church for so long. They, they've participated in all the things the church has done, and yet they live as if Christ is not supreme or central. Do you know anyone who you're concerned about who might be self-deceived? Every generation has these issues of apostasy. I'm concerned that we are experiencing even more of it and seeing more of it today, but every generation has had its apostates. Abraham had his lot. Jacob had his Levi and Simeon. Moses had Nadab, Abihu, and Korah and their rebellion. Joshua had Achan. David had his Absalom. Paul had his Demas, and Jesus had his too, didn't he? In Judas. And virtually every New Testament, New Testament epistle seems to contain multiple warnings, not only about apostasy, but also about this issue of self-deception, to make sure that you are not deceiving yourself about whether you are in Christ or not. And we have to be careful about addressing this subject. And I want to be careful in our time together. We don't want to create a climate in which, when we talk about this subject, we're always creating a climate of self-doubt and constant doubt of one another or ourselves. We will not suggest in our time together that, that the gospel is not secure. I certainly believe in the security of true salvation. I hope that you do as well. I'll not be suggesting that you can somehow lose genuine salvation. But I do know this to be true, that any true Christian can commit any sin at any time and still be genuinely redeemed. And we need to think on that carefully. We're not talking about Christians who fall into sin. We're talking about Christians who fall into sin and never turn away from it. The presence of sin in a Christian's life is not the sign of self-deception, but the presence of unrepentance for someone who professes faith could actually be the sign of self-deception. But nonetheless, we don't want to live the Christian life without regularly calling each other to a biblical standard of thinking and living and interaction with each other. We need encouragement and instruction, warning, correction. We need... Things like church discipline and Christian friendship and ongoing discipleship. The writer of Hebrews understood this very clearly. He wrote in chapter 3 and verse 12, listen to this carefully. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Who's he talking to? Brethren. People who profess to be Believers, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How do you remedy that? He goes on to say, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. That is a powerful statement. Later he would say in chapter 10, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And let us, speaking to the church, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds 
not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's something about our gatherings in which we should, in personal interaction and from the pulpit and the teaching of the word, encourage, implore, and walk alongside one another in such a way that we would lose no one, that no one would walk away from the faith. So how do we do that? How do we help each other to increase our love for one another, our loyalty to Christ, so that we are neither apostate nor self-deceived? We could run down a number of roads in Scripture to help us with that, but we're going to focus throughout our time together over the next number of, of uh, meetings that we have. We're going to focus on this chapter of 1 Corinthians 10. It is a chapter of warning. And this warning encompasses a host of biblical examples, and it's filled with practical application in its thorough and sobering call. You see that call in verse 12. This is really one of the central themes of this chapter. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, meaning pay attention, watch, look carefully at. If you think that you stand, don't be so secure that you stop watching yourself, each other. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Now before we unpack this chapter together, I, I want to talk about why Paul brings this up here. And to do that, I want to give you just a little bit of a jet tour. I, I do know it's, I see the clock, it's a large one. I'm thankful for that at the back. Uh, we got rid of that long ago in our congregation. <laughs> But I, I'm mindful of the stop time. So, you know, if, we, if I don't finish, we just pick it up in the next one, right? Something like that. But I, I do want to give you a little bit of a jet tour through the book of 1 Corinthians just to get our mind around what is going on here and why Paul brings up this subject here in this place. For just this little jet tour, I, I want us to think through this. This is a congregation of which the Apostle Paul came, and, and when he arrived there, Acts chapter 18 records it for us, there was no known Christian church there. He actually founds a church in the city of Corinth. It was an ungodly place. Many people would refer to it as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Uh, my family and I had the opportunity a few years ago, just before COVID hit, 2019 is when our sabbatical was, we made our way over to Western Turkey and did the tour of the seven churches and made our way over to, to Greece and to Athens and down south into Corinth. And uh, I had just finished preaching the book of 1 Corinthians, and so uh, they were ready to move on to other rocks in the world. I, I really wanted to linger in the city of Corinth because much of this was just flooding through my mind as you're walking through the streets and the agora and seeing the temples. This was an ungodly place. This was a place of, of rank immorality. Standing high above the city of Corinth is the, the ancient Acre Corinth, and some say a hundred years before Paul even arrived there that 
the, the ancient prostitutes dedicated to a particular goddess of fertility would descend from that hill way above the city into the city, and it would be an act of worship to engage in immorality. And that was the kind of atmosphere that plagued this city. But Paul goes and he dedicates a number of years to preaching the gospel in this area, founds a church, but then moves on. And as he moves on, he begins to hear reports. Reports come to him. In fact, the first six chapters of this book are Paul responding to written reports that had come to him about the Corinthians. In fact, these reports indicate that people had become disenchanted with the simplistic gospel of Paul as professional philosophers made their way through the city and the church began to compare that simplistic gospel that Paul preached with these very sophisticated, powerful, influential, and really attractive ideas and philosophies that the rest of the world was, was purporting, they began to look at this and say, I'm not sure our gospel is quite attractive, as attractive as these other philosophies. There seems to be a higher spirituality that we could attain to if we went down this other road and not down the road that Paul preached. And they began to bend away from the gospel Paul originally brought to them. Chapters 1 through 6 detail that. They found the culture more intriguing. Paul deals with that in chapters 1 through 4. It had led them to ignore behaviors of heinous sin in their membership. And they even began, perhaps by exalting freedom and grace, they began to brag about sinful relationships that were taking place in the church. And one of those is detailed in chapter 5 when Paul says, you should have taken this man and his infamous sin and removed him from the church. Instead, you brag about what he is doing in the congregation. They pursued a kind of approach to issues like immorality as if that kind of immorality had no real spiritual impact. They thought that whatever you did in the physical body had no bearing on what happened in the spiritual realm. Kind of a Gnosticism that was beginning in that first century that would later move on, that whatever's physical has no impact on what is spiritual. And you see him dealing with some of that in chapter 6. But not only was he hearing reports, what is even more fascinating to me is that the apostle actually received a letter from the Corinthians. And I take it to be, from reading through this, that he received a letter from the leaders of the church in Corinth. And they were not asking questions about how to live the Christian life. They're making statements Statements in opposition to Paul and his leadership, which would have been gut-wrenching, I think, for the apostle to read this of people that he watched come to faith in Christ and develop into a church. You begin to see some of those statements from the letters that they, the letter that they penned to him in chapter 7 and from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 16. It's a response from Paul to what they had written. If you wanted to see the issues... They're very simple to see. You can actually trace it through a little phrase that is repeated over and over. It's a little phrase, now concerning. So you can see it in, in chapter 7. You can see it in chapter 8. Uh, so chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. I know some commentators have suggested that they were asking questions. Paul, how do we deal with this? They're not asking questions. They're making statements. And he's responding to their statements. Chapter 8 is another one, now concerning food. 
offered to idols. Chapter 12 is another, now concerning spiritual gifts. Another is found in chapter 16, now concerning the collection. And one final one in verse 12 of chapter 16, now concerning our brother Apollos. Each one of those marks off a section of their letter they have written to him, and he is responding to them. That's where chapters 8 through 11 actually come in. He's dealing with an issue, and you can see it very clearly in chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. That's not an issue you've probably dealt with any time in the recent past, food offered to idols, but it would have been one that they dealt with frequently. In fact, they are deluding themselves. They are engaging in a kind of behavior in which they are fraternizing with idols, and they think that their involvement with these idols has no real spiritual effect on them. They live on a plane above it all. I mean, what's an idol anyway? There's no real substance spiritually to an idol. So it really doesn't matter if we're engaging with the culture and their idolatries. It won't have any impact on our great spirituality. But that, in fact, is not the case. They want to purport to have a specific kind of spiritual freedom a freedom to engage in whatever they desire with a security in their conscience that it has no real spiritual impact. I wonder if we don't find a similar mindset in our present culture of how deep we can go into wrapping our arms around the philosophies of the world, the entertainments of the culture, with it having no real spiritual impact because we say we're in Christ the gospel is secure once saved always saved which I affirm those things biblically speaking but we could be embracing more of the culture without giving great sensitivity to its impact on us spiritually which is exactly where the church was in Paul's day moving away from the centrality of a gospel that seems dry, non-attractive, towards an idea, towards spirituality and religion that the world is more enamored with. And yet, what kind of spiritual fruit is actually being produced? That's why Paul says in chapter 10, take heed. If you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. Freedom is not, freedom in Christ is not something that should breed a lack of concentration on where we are spiritually. It should actually make us more attentive. In essence, when we get to chapter 10, Paul is telling us, don't allow a pursuit of personal freedom to delude you from trusting in what consists of true faith in Christ. That's the real idea. And there is a specific freedom that is being discussed in these chapters. The Corinthians are actually making their way, we learn in chapter 8, to the idols' temples, and they're eating a sacrificial meal that would be offered at that temple. Now, just to back up on that, that would be, I'm sure there's no one here that would say, yeah, we, we find our best meal at the idol's temple around here. We don't have idol's temples like they did back then. If you visit the city of Corinth, you will see um, 
the ancient temple of Apollos and its Doric columns of stone still standing from well before the first century when it was erected. They're still standing there. And attached to these temples would be places where people would go for social interaction. It's a place like a a coffee shop would be to us today. They would go to the idol's temple, and there you would have a meal. You would celebrate some kind of family celebration. It was a common social, cultural place you would go to enjoy common social family events. No one really thought anything about it. But when you sat down to have a meal, the steak and the ribeye in front of you was likely offered to one of the gods in the temple adjacent to it. In fact, it would be common at such a social event before the event began that a prayer would be offered invoking the favor of the god whose temple you were eating in. But no one really thought much about it. It was just a normal social thing you did. Some people just had a religious, a cultural religion about them. Yes, yes, let's appease the gods if we could, as it were, by asking the gods' favor over our meal. But they had no real devotion to any of those gods. It was just a cultural kind of religion. Well, how does a Christian participate in that? Well, the Corinthians, they would say of themselves, well, listen, we know there's nothing to idols and idolatry. We live on a higher spiritual plane. So we can go to the idol's temple with people. In fact, it would prove to be evangelistic if we did so. And they would go and they would eat at the idol's temple. What we have to realize about the ancient world is that religion was baked into absolutely everything they did. That's odd for us. In America, we have a separation between government and religion in that there is no state-sanctioned religion. That's unique to our country, to be honest. Everywhere else in the world, it seems that religion and, and government were all baked in together. In fact, in, in Corinthian society, everything, everything was religious, had some religious overtone. You didn't do any social event with some religious connection to it. And so Paul says, you as a Christian, you have to think about that very, very carefully. If you're suggesting, Paul would say to the Corinthians, that you could participate in such a way that has no spiritual impact, you need to take careful assessment of that. In fact, in chapter 8, he is warning them that you could actually be destroying the faith of young, weak Christians who have just joined the church and come out of, out of idolatry if they see you eating in the idol's temple and they assume that idolatry then is okay and they revert back to their idolatry and leave Christianity. You can't lead them that, that direction. In chapter 9, he suggests that even the non-Christian world might not believe what you have to say about Christ if they see you simply acting like the pagan world, you lose any legitimacy of your witness. But not only does it affect the weak, not only does it affect those who are outside the church, but you should give attention to yourself. To yourself. Are you aware of what entanglement with the culture is doing to your own soul. That's what chapter 10 is all about. You may be affecting the weak, chapter 8. You may be alienated the non-Christian, chapter 9. But you may be deluding yourself, chapter 10. 
I think they were deluding themselves. In fact, as they partook at these idol temples, they would appeal to certain elements of their religiosity within the church and say, because we participate in these religious deeds, we think we're spiritually safe. Something like the Lord's Supper. Maybe you don't think of it that way. Um, You've invited a Baptist here, so Baptists have particular views of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, But I would guess that uh, we share some of those, so you're really Baptist too. You just didn't, you just don't acknowledge it all the time. So I'll, I'll help you with that in the next few days. But they actually believed that participating in the Lord's Supper was probably some kind of a magical incantation, a magical event, a spiritual event that really protected them from any of the filth that could enter into their, their spiritual life as they engaged with the unsaved culture. Really, the theme of this chapter is found in verse 12 that we've looked at, just read, take heed. That's the negative side of it. But there's a positive side as well. If you're taking heed and watching out, then what is the positive side of which we should give attention? That's found in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Watch yourself. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. And yet on the flip side of that is do everything that you do to the glory of God. Of God. So, what we're going to look at together in our time over the next number of days is five different examinations so that we do not delude ourselves. We do not delude our hearts from true faith, but we pursue the glory of God and true faith. You don't need to write all of these down all of a sudden. I know every time we see a PowerPoint with stuff, we think we've got to get it all down or we'll miss it. This is going to come back. We'll go over it every single time. But this is where we're going. Do not delude yourself. Five different examinations. The first will be do not trust in the signs of belief. We'll unpack what that means. Secondly, abandon the behaviors of unbelief. What kinds of behaviors actually show unbelief, not true belief? Third, flee from all forms of idolatry. Are you engaged in idolatry? Flee from all forms of idolatry. We'll see that in verses 14 to 22. Fourth, keep your freedoms free from idolatry. We all believe that we are free in Christ. We'll keep those freedoms free from idolatry, verses 23 to 30. And last is where we'll end up on Tuesday evening, live for the glory of God. So that's the roadmap of which we will run down over the next number of days. This morning, we're going to look at the very first of these five examinations. Take heed to yourself and your soul by looking at your heart. Don't trust in the signs of belief for some kind of spiritual security. Don't trust in the signs of belief. Verses 1 through 5. Would you look at those verses with me for a moment? Let me read them. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all 
were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. There are two signs of belief that Paul points to, two true, true signs of true belief that he addresses here, but they are signs of faith, not the substance of faith. Now, when I say here, don't trust in the signs, I'm not talking about evidential signs, signs that you would see as evidence of faith. I'm talking about markers that point to faith, signs of faith that are not the substance Signs that you would participate in. He even mentions here, he begins, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. He suggests that the Corinthians themselves are perhaps deceiving themselves. This is a group of people who prided themselves on knowledge. We have true spiritual knowledge. So he comes back and says, ah, but you might be unaware, which would tweak them a little bit. They pride themselves on being a knowledgeable people, but perhaps you are unaware, and I don't want you to be ignorant. You love knowledge. You don't want to be ignorant, but perhaps you are. I don't want you to be ignorant. He refers here to our fathers, our fathers. I take this to mean the people of God before the present era, meaning Israel, the nation of Israel. We, in the present era, we're the church. We are the church, the present people of God in this stage of his redemptive work. But we can look at the similarities of the old covenant people of God who are Israel. While we don't have a one-to-one relationship with Israel and the church, salvation by faith was the same for them as it is for us. They were anticipating Messiah. We look back and see who the Messiah is and our faith is in him. But he's asking them to ask of themselves, in what, in who are you actually trusting? And he says, think about our fathers. Think about Israel of the past. And I want you to go back and remind yourself of much of what you've been reading in your Bible reading plan. How many of you are in the Old Testament in your annual Bible reading plan? If you do that and you're finding yourself reading through Leviticus and Numbers, I was in Deuteronomy this morning, and you're reading about Old Testament Israel and all of the laws, but even more than that, remember back to certain events like this, we, they were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Do you remember in your reading what he's referring to there? More than likely, you do. You've got Charlton Heston in mind or something like that. Those of you who are older know what that is. Before I look at some of these with you, did you notice, and perhaps you want to underline them, did you see all of the all statements there? There are five of them. They all were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. All of these are referring to specific events chronicled in the books of Exodus and Numbers, particularly. 
And it's contrasted with the final phrase in verse 5, nevertheless with not all, but most of them. God was not pleased. The old covenant people of God, all of them, every single one of them, all without any distinction, participated in certain external signs that aligned them with God. All of them did. And what are they? Well, they were all under the cloud. What is that referring to? You can jot down Exodus chapter 13. I'll just read a portion of it for the sake of time. But just to remind you of it, Exodus chapter 13, as they were being led out of Egypt, you remember that? As they're being led out of Egypt, in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And how did God lead them? Verse 21 of Exodus 13, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So just pause. How many of the children of Israel were led by that pillar? All of them. All of them, 100%. So think about that, if you would. If you were in Israel, and you're coming out of Egypt, what would you think about God if you noticed that he was leading you by a pillar? Not, not a natural dust storm, a supernatural tornado. A supernatural display of fire from the heavens coming down and leading them forward as to where they should go. Would you assume we're the people of God? God is leading us. How many is he leading? All of them. Not some of them. Not just some who had true faith. All of them were being led by the cloud. They all followed it. They all identified with God as they followed the cloud. Furthermore, they all passed through the sea. Paul says. That's a reference to Exodus 14. You know Exodus 14 where they cross the Red Sea. In verse 30 is the conclusion of that. Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the sea. Israel is led through as Moses stretched out his staff across the sea. It parted. They walked across on dry land. It came back, destroyed Pharaoh's army. It ends, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord. How many of them feared the Lord? All of them feared the Lord. All of them would say they believed. It says, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Because they all went through the sea. Not one Israelite was lost. The cloud led them. The sea preserved them. They passed through the sea. What would you think of yourself spiritually? What God has done 
the Apostle Paul even sums this up for them. They all passed through the sea. They were all a part of the cloud. Verse 2 back in chapter 10 says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What were they trusting in? They were trusting in their connection, outward connection to God, which I find as being the very first sign of what we do not trust in. Don't trust in the signs of, un, of belief. What is the first sign? Don't trust in baptism. That's what he's referring to here. Don't trust in baptism. Now, that is an odd statement for a Baptist to say. Do not trust in baptism. And you'd say, well, I, I don't really know anybody who's really concerned about that these days. But aren't you? Isn't baptism one of the sure signs of salvation? That's the way the Bible talks about it. I'll say more about it in a moment. But Paul says of the Israelites, they all went through the cloud. They all went through the sea. And he summarized it to say they were all baptized into Moses. Why would he say that? They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Why use baptism? Why even bring that up? Baptism is not discussed anywhere in Exodus about Israel. Why use that? Well, the word baptism literally means in the Greek text, baptizo means to cover completely, to immerse when they went through the cloud and then the sea, those were not just signs of physical deliverance. Those signs for Israel were actually signs of spiritual redemption. In fact, if you trace the use of their going through the sea, that's a sign throughout the prophets to say God has redeemed you. They're signs of your redemption. You would look back and say, I'm a part of the people of God because God led us through the cloud. That's a sign of his redemption. He led us through the sea. That's a sign of our redemption. Thus, Paul comes back and says here to the Corinthians, just like Israel had a baptism into Moses, they were immersed into Moses. Remember, it said they believed in the Lord and in Moses. They were immersed into him in these signs that showed their redemption, which is exactly what Christian baptism is. It is the sign of your salvation. In fact, how do you know that a person has professed faith in Christ? The initial sign of profession of faith in Jesus is water baptism. It pictures the spiritual transformation. I think it's one of the most significant signs there is in your Christian pilgrimage when you were baptized is when you displayed your commitment to Christ. As we worked with people in Central Asia, when they come from Islam and Muslim religion into Christianity, the most significant thing they do that severs the tie between their former relationship with their religion and their adoption of, of Christianity is their baptism which is the single greatest issue for them. If they're baptized, they lose their family. They can go to church, they can read the Bible, they can study things with Christians, but as soon as they are baptized, it's the sign they are a Christian. It's one of the reasons why we tend to urge young children raised in great homes to be patient with baptism, because sometimes it's hard 
to tell the difference between conversion and good parenting. It's difficult at times. How do we know that this faith that you say you have is your own? When you display that credible sign of salvation spiritually because you're choosing Christ over sin, you should then be baptized because that's the sign of your salvation. It is your connection with God, which all of the Corinthians had participated in. They were in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that if you're baptized, it is your immersion into the body of Christ. The visible sign of baptism is the display that you are in the body of Christ. The visible sign of the body of Christ is the local church. Your baptism into Christ is your sign that you're a part of his body. You are connected to his church. They were all baptized. Just like the Israelites were all baptized baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. There's a sign. In fact, baptism was a significant issue for the Corinthians. If you jump back to chapter 1, you see it. They viewed their baptism as something perhaps magical, mystical, spiritually protective. It's the sign that they were all in Christ. They didn't have to worry about idolatry. They're baptized. In chapter 1, verse 13, look at how much Paul discusses baptism in terms of their divisions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also in the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Just mentioning it that many times, what does that suggest? They placed a lot of relevance and a lot of significance in the sign of baptism. So Paul brings it up. You want to talk about baptism? Do you go back and think about your Christianity? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I was baptized when? You ever heard that? I hear that all the time. How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, I was baptized when I was... We, we tend, that's a big mark in people's minds. Is that what you trust in? The memory of your baptism? Do you think that baptism and the sign of water has some kind of spiritual protection over your soul? I think it is a legitimate external sign to depict salvation. But the sign is not salvation, is it? We don't say that baptism is your conversion. Don't trust in baptism. That's not a sign you would trust in. What's another sign? There's a second one that he refers to here, and it's the other visible sign that churches and Christians regularly participate in. Don't trust in the Lord's Supper for your security. That's the other one. You say, well, where do you find that? Well, verse 3. Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Why, why bring this up? All of Israel ate a certain kind of food and they all had a certain kind of drink. What do we do at the Lord's table? You do understand that the Lord's Supper for Christians is not just a sign of your personal conversion. We will see this later in chapter 10 because he gets into this explicitly. 
The Lord's Supper is not just a sign of your personal conversion. It is a display of who the church is. We who are all one body partake of one bread because we are one body in Christ. When you take of the Lord's table, you are saying together, we visibly are the body of Christ. When you drink together, you're saying we are all the redeemed of God. Just like the Israelites, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. You remember the food that they ate. Exodus chapter 16. I'll just note it. But you can jot it down. Exodus 16. Remember the food they had? They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. That's fascinating, isn't it? You've just come through the sea by a cloud leading you, a pillar of fire leading you. You've just seen all of the plagues on on Egypt, the most powerful nation of the earth, and you're mad? Oh, that we died in Egypt. You want to go back to Egypt? Yes, because there it's when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. What did he bring them? The manna. And every day they could go and they could gather enough that they needed for their family and God supernaturally fed them. How many of the Israelites were sustained by the bread? All of them. Every la- all the complainers. All the grumblers. Oh, there's the bell. I've got five minutes. I see it. Listen fast. All right. All ate the bread. If you turn to Exodus 17, you find the congregation of the people of Israel. They moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no what? Water to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with us? So Moses cried to the Lord, What will I do? And he took the staff in which he had struck the Nile, and he struck the rock, and water came out. How many lived in Israel because of the water? They all did. In fact, this was not the only time water came from the rock. Numbers 20 mentions another. It's like bookends to their wilderness journey. They all were saved by it. God provided for them. He preserved them. And they drank from the spiritual rock, Paul says. The spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. Not in any kind of uh, literal way. It wasn't Jesus in the form of a rock rolling with them through the wilderness. 
But they had faith in the coming of Messiah. Messiah was the promise that would sum up the Abrahamic covenant for them. They had faith in the Messiah to come. So it was Messiah. It was Christ providing for them in the wilderness. But I I want you to go back and just note the end of verse 5 as we, we finish this up. So they all were preserved. They all had the sign of baptism. They all had the sign of the Lord's Supper. Just like every one of you today who's a part of the church, you have the sign of baptism, and you participate and show yourself to be the people of God through the sign of the Lord's Supper. The problem with Israel was, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Could I put that in some perspective for you? There's probably some 2 million Israelites being led through the wilderness at this time from Modest estimates, two million. How many? How many of the two million ate the bread? All two million. How many ate, drank from the water? They all did. How many of them made it out of the wilderness? Do you remember? Two people. Caleb and Joshua. Of course, there were generations that came out of that first generation that made it out of the wilderness, but of the original generation, two. To say that most of them were not pleasing to the Lord is an understatement. For you to do on your own, it would do you well to go to a place like John chapter 6 sometime, where Jesus looks at the crowds and he says to them, you follow me because you want bread. He had just fed thousands with supernatural bread. You remember that? You want to follow me because of the bread. He says it several times. And what does he say of himself? I am the bread. And as soon as he said that, do you know what some of his disciples, if you look at the text clearly, some of his disciples began to grumble against them. And they were offended. And many disciples stopped following him because he said he was the bread. Here's the issue. In what are you actually trusting for your own spiritual security? You're all here. You're all likely a part of the church. You profess faith in Christ. You've been baptized, perhaps, and you partake of the Lord's table. When you do those things, do you assume, by that I am God's people? Or are you as those disciples, meaning those who outwardly, publicly followed Christ, when it comes down to following the person of Jesus and what he stands for, you look at your life and say, I'm not sure I want that. Take heed, lest you fall. Take heed. In what are you trusting? If there is anything, anyone other than the person of Christ in whom you are trusting for your spiritual security, you will fall. You will fall, just like the Israelites. Don't trust in signs for your security. We'll pick it up with the next one in the next session. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for grace and wisdom to help us think these things through personally and practically. We would ask for your help that you, by the illuminating work of the Spirit, would illuminate our own hearts as to where we are in Christ. 
And if there is anyone here trusting in something other than the Savior, open their hearts to the truthfulness of where they are before you and save them for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.